GM friends, and welcome to the future of gaming. You are listening to our weekly podcasts. Today's a special episode. I have Harry Homewood and Stikaran with me, co-founders and respectively CEO and creative director of Magic Cave. This is almost to the week, a year after we did our first introductory celebratory um, recording that we did live at Develop in Brighton with and those are better times, with a mojito or a gin tonic, that was it, with gin and tonics. And um, yeah, I mean, years gone by, and I think this warrants an update. I think the previous episode we did with the Medicals by Navic, so I'll link that in the description. So if you want to know where we started, you can watch that. But maybe uh, this is a good moment to uh, perhaps do a brief reintroduction of you guys, of what you're building, and, and where you are now. So um, Harry, you want to start? Yeah, so, um, yeah, we've been building now for over a year. Um, what we're building is is a project called Dino or D-Number. Um, and, and the theory is that we kind of want to create a digital hobby that's akin to like a Warhammer or a D&D, that kind of thing. Where if, you, if you walk into a Warhammer store, you know, you've got one wall that's full of the figures and the paints and there's sort of that element of the hobby there. There's There's areas where it's full of books or full of boards or full of magazines about the whole, you know, and, and I remember as a kid playing D&D that there would be, uh, you know, there was my friend who was the dungeon master who was really into creating the worlds. There were the guys that were really arty that were into painting the figures. I was a sort of stats nerd that kind of memorized the monster manual and the player's handbook and knew every stat and every sword, you know, what what it needed to hit and what you needed to roll to get this and that. And I like the fact that those, you know, the D and D as a hobby kind of brought together people with different interests, with different skills and, and passions, and and I think you can do that digitally as well. And I think that you know what's what's interesting from a Web three point of view is that you can create these hobbies and that there are different facets of that hobby. So, you know, most people are just going to want to play or just but may may want to engage in different ways. Um, some people might want to create in that ecosystem some people might want to create and make money in that ecosystem or some people may want to own things in that ecosystem or, or or build things in that ecosystem whether it's characters or worlds or whole games and so so what d number is about is is trying to kind of curate an ecosystem that facilitates that all the way from making games making digital items but also making available our technology and our sdks for other people to be able to play in in that space Love that, Steve. Hi, um, I, I would echo what Harry was saying. Obviously, because we're working on the same thing, but also emphasise that I think the vast majority of people just want to play. And so, what we're trying to do is make toys, small toys, that people can play with. And most of those people will engage with those toys in the ways that we construct, right? With the games that we build around those toys. But other people will take those toys and do whatever they want with them. And that's the really, really exciting part for me. Great. So one year later, what is what do we have now? Where where's Magic Ave at? Uh <laughs> That's a big question. I, I guess one of the things that happens when you develop something is you develop by inches, right? Like, and you see the thing change uh, small amounts every day. And 
that stops you having that step back to see how much you've achieved uh, over the course of the year. A year ago, we had a very, very small prototype of a game uh, that was called HexGen, uh, which was a roguelike prototype. It showed a character going deeper and deeper into dungeons. It was basically a two-dimensional prototype. Um, and we had a uh, some... Um, some technology that would generate the dice on which this hobby is based. And all of this all of this stuff was kind of proof of concept. What we wanted to do with the game was to the prototype to uh, for it to fill us with enough confidence that this was a good enough thing to go on and build into a a bigger game which now has a name. I'm not sure if we're talking about that name today yeah. or not. We, we are. are. Okay, which is called Beneath the Six. So um Hexgen has become that, uh, has developed into a bigger 3D roguelike game. And when I say roguelike, what I mean is a game like Rogue, uh, the original Rogue, rather than like a succession of roguelikes that have emerged from there uh, to such a point that the word roguelike almost means nothing. What we wanted to do was create a game harks back to the original Rogue. So it's solid dungeoneering, going down different levels, creating a character at the start, seeing how far you can get, and then repeating that over and over and over again, uh, while at the same time learning all of the lessons that people have learned from the evolution of roguelikes. So it's, it's kind of a hybrid roguelike, like rogue, and like roguelikes, which is... That honest... is the quotes we're <laughs> taking out of this one. Honestly, uh, you know, a mouthful. Um, so we've built that out. That's what we've been concentrating on building over the last year. We're I reckon, a couple of months out from putting that out to the public. Uh, and when I say that, I mean a small subset of what that is, what we're calling a combat test. So it's not an early access version of the game. It's not an alpha. It's it's none of those things. What it is is the combat loop, the kind of chess-like move around these hexagons, work out where uh, it is safe to move next and which enemy it is best to attack next, and then move to a, another floor. We're calling it the arena. Yeah, um, I mean, the, the way we talk about it internally, there's kind of three things that make up beneath the six. There's the combat, there's the exploration, and then there's the lore and stories. And that the combat test is really just the combat. So rather than these big procedurally generated dungeons, which is one of the pieces of tech we've built, um, it's it's small self-contained arenas. Um, you know, you can see the whole environment at one time. Um, you go in there, there's a load of monsters, you kill the monsters, portal opens up, you go to the next level, and we'll generate a new one of these dungeons every day. Um, and people can compete, people can see what kind of characters work against what kind of enemies, all the different characters. So you generate the characters from the dice. You might have a set of wizard dice that have some kind of magical aura about them, or you might have a set of barbarian dice or rogue dice. And you can combine those in our character editor to create different characters. So, you know, lots of wizard dice will be very strong on, on magic, uh, but you start bringing in some warrior-type dice and they'll probably have better uh, melee fighting skills, for example. Um, and, and so we'll launch with a very simplified version of that. Um, so a very limited set of dice that you can play with and a very limited set of characters because the first thing we just want to be understanding is... You know, are people enjoying the mechanics? Is the game? You know, we, we're finding it fun now. It always it always happens with a game. You go through a phase of kind of building the core parts, and you've got this kind of we think when we put this together with this and this, it's going to be fun. And and eventually, you come out the other side of it, and it either is or isn't. 
Um, and we're kind of at the point now where we're thinking, yeah, we're enjoying playing this now, which, which you know certainly wouldn't have been the case six months ago. So that's great. Um, but the next step is to just get some more validation on that um, from from a broader set of people that hopefully will you know join us on our Discord, become part of the community, help us as we we navigate the journey as to what this game and 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 the other games in in the kind of ecosystem become. So, what would be a great outcome for us over the next few months is. You know, a bunch of people come on our Discord, they enjoy playing the game, they enjoy competing on the game, they give us some feedback about, okay, you know, when when the next version of the game comes out that's adding exploration, hopefully the people that are here now are kind of the early evangelists and fans of the games in the future. Um, but, you know, it's, it's one step at a time, basically. You know, we, we, we think we, we're, we're approaching the point where it's time to ask some other people what do they think, you know. Last year... Um... I remember, so Bitcroft invested in, in Magic Gave, um, Bitcroft led, led you around, core led you around last year. And I remember during our pitch that the way you thought as a team about Web3 and games and specifically NFTs was fundamentally different than probably every other pitch I've had over the past three years. What can you tell me about how you're thinking about NFTs, what they bring to games, and how you see your approach differ from what you see in, in, in the market today? I, I don't think our, our approach has changed at all since last year, um, which is one of the validating things about our approach, I think. We uh, started thinking about this incredibly volatile and future-centric space um, 18 months ago, and we started thinking about not not what um everyone else was doing but in a kind of cold way about like the technology and what was interesting to the techno uh, about the technology to me as a game designer um now people who listened to the previous time we were on the show will know that to me that was the physicality that web3 and blockchain lent to digital items and that physicality being a illusion of sorts. Certainly, if you talk to Web3 skeptics, they will say all of this is nonsense. None of it is real. It's just a big database. You know, you're, you're buying into an illusion. As a game designer, I fully believe in the power of illusions. So that's not a counter argument to me. If the whole world buys into the fact that blockchain makes your items more real, even if some people are saying it doesn't, it doesn't. The technology is this, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. We've all bought into that illusion. All I can tell you as a, as a, uh, you know, a light user in this space is that when I have taken an item from a place, be that you know just a sales site or be that a game, and removed it and put it into my wallet and then put it back into the game, that transaction makes that item feel more real. So that's powerful to me. Like that, 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 as someone who all his life has built games and dealt in what amounts to illusions, that's powerful. So that was our thesis right at the start. That was the thing that we approached you guys with. And to an extent, it's much more conservative than anything else in the, in the Web3 space, which is using all kinds of you know, terms and technology that really genuinely I don't understand and kind of don't need to in the position we are at, which is we are using these items we're using that illusion. Um, what that 
allows people to do, I think, is deal with it on those terms. So if they own that item, they can do all kinds of things with it. Like Harry says, we want to build a hobby. And we want to build a hobby where people use these toys according to our rules, but also break out of our rules and build whatever they want. We define what these items are on the chain. And then they take those rules and they can build other games with them, or they can take them, paint them, or they can do, you know, all kinds of stuff to them. But ultimately, if you're just a player like me, and you live in Web 2.5 at best, then you can just play the game with our objects and never really engage with that technology. And to me, that's more futuristic than a lot of the uh, you know high concept games out there because we want to deal with you know millions and millions of players, not the hundred thousand web three evangelists that exist right now. We want to deal with millions and millions and millions of people, and that means dealing with people who just don't care about any of these things, just want to play our game, and that rests at the core of what we're doing. We're trying to make a really, really, really good game also takes advantage of this technology. Harry, what implication does that decision and that way of thinking have on the business model behind Magic Gave? You know, traditional Web3 games, they have a limited, well, in many cases, a limited number of assets that they sell and fees that they sell. And then a big part of the way they will monetize as a company or as a protocol is on secondary transactions. It is assuming that people will, you know, be incentivized to actually sell their items to someone else and then they'll take a, a share of that. How are you thinking about, you know, the way you're approaching NFTs within the game and what that means for your the way you monetize as a company? Um it's a good question. And I think curiously that the whole kind of web three game space is it feels like, and I mean, maybe maybe we'll all be proved to be very wrong, but it feels like if you sort of look 20 years into the future and you imagine what what do we picture the world is going to be like, and certainly people that are enthusiastic about Web3, they see these economies and they see these decentralized games and they see you know them being mass market in the way that a Grand Theft Auto or whatever is mass market. Um, and it feels like it's easy to see that far future, but it's far harder, I think, to see the near future and to see the steps that we have to go through from where we are to where we want to be. Because it looks to me like the reality is, um, you know, this was the case when we started the company, I think it's still kind of the case now, that there isn't that big crossover between gamer gamers, as we sort of traditionally would have them in the games industry, and and the Web3 enthusiasts. And you know, a lot of projects, and we, we deliberately steered away from this, and this is why we looked to raise money from you guys in the first place, was we didn't like the, the sort of model of create an asset, sell the asset, hopefully the asset goes up in value, and then you're using that funding to develop a project. Because uh, what we've seen is that, you know, whether it's a, a coin or a bunch of NFTs or whatever, you know, a, generally, nearly always, the value of those assets after some kind of, of wave of excitement has actually trended back down to near zero. Um, and I think that that kind of undoes the business proposition that a lot of those early adopters into the game were, were attracted to. You know, it, it's... And I think it's probably very hard to come back from there. So from the beginning, we kind of thought, okay, well, we've got to make desirable things that people want and we have to, uh, you know, from, from the digital items, but we've also got to make a great game. Without a great game, kind of what's the point? It's 
yes, you can create a speculative asset with a narrative attached to it, but it felt like that was a little blip that, that kind of happened at the beginning of Web3. Um, and I, so, you know, it, it's about creating this sustainable ecosystem. Um, and I think that the right path is to assume, well, you know, right now there aren't that many people playing um, Web3 games in the way that we see they'll be playing them in 20 years' time. And there's no point pretending that that isn't the case. So we kind of need to be a, a foot in both worlds. You know, it's certainly the case, you know, I remember, what, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, working on PlayStation. We were, you know, enormously successful releasing a game console, but we only had... I think we sold PlayStation something like 100, 150 million consoles, right? And it, mobile had to come along before the number of games got into the billions. And we realized this is much more mass market than we thought. And maybe that's the same kind of thing that's going to happen with Web3. It's a niche hobby, but eventually, it, yeah, it's going to become like mobile and lots and lots of people are going to be wanting to engage in it. Um, so so I think, you know, we, we, we need to be inventive enough and, and far, uh, you know, sort of visionary enough about the future. And I think our proposition is very future looking when you dig deep into the kind of Web3 ecosystem that we're looking to build. But I think in the short term, it may well be that a lot of our revenues are coming from fairly traditional sources. You know, we, we will have traditional, you know, non-blockchain uh, monetization systems in the game, as well as the ability to buy um, objects, or, you know, to create objects as NFTs. We need to recognize that not everybody is going to care about, do I own this thing on this blockchain or not? Do I want it in my wallet? Especially if we're not kind of in the business of, uh, you know, encouraging the speculation, which I think, you know, maybe cash-wise useful for some projects to get some cash in in the short term, but long-term is actually detrimental to the future of that project. So, you know, we, we will need to be generating money in the same way that all other game companies generate money. And I suspect... You know, we, I think we don't know yet what the KPIs for this industry are and what the balance of you know, crypto payments versus fiat payments is going to be for us. I suspect early on, we're going to have a reasonably high amount of uh, standard gaming, free-to-play gaming type transactions. And over time, that the, the balance will probably change. But we don't know that yet. And in a way, we don't care that much about it yet because until the game is good, until the game is... Uh, enjoyable and until we're starting to nurture this ecosystem nothing else matters you know what one thing i learned from free to play is the only really important metric is retention right you can have a game that monetizes incredibly but if only one person gets retained it's, it's useless to you you know so so we've got to make a good game we've got to you know find what is it that's going to make people want to come back and i think the, re the rest will come from there that's what i always liked about your approach and what's it's what i like about what you're doing now whenever Companies pitch to us, uh, especially if they're pitching something after they're already they already raised a seed round. They're asking me like, "What KPIs do you want?" And um, you know, my answer is always like, I, "I don't really care about your sales of NFTs. I don't care how many millions you manage to raise. I don't get, really care about how many people are in your Discord. What I really care about is are people actually playing your game, and do they keep playing your game, and how long are they playing your game, and how long do they keep playing your game a month after?" or after they started it first. And so these all of these traditional KPI metrics um, still hold strong and, you know, remain to be the most relevant. Mm. What I find very interesting about your monetization approach and the way you're thinking about the, the whole Magic Ave or, or D-Number ecosystem is it feels to me that it's, it's almost Lego-like 
in that the more people actually purchase assets, the greater their creative space becomes, the more ways they can interact with the universe and the more, you know, if you put it in Lego terms, like I, I remember when I was young, when I was 10 years old, I had this castle that was a amalgamation of like some knights and, and traditional castle pieces, but also had a spaceship that I then borrowed parts for to put in my castle. And so my castle was was a Frankenstein monster um, of parts from different worlds and different universes. But it was great because it had high walls and so I could do like these battles. Um, and so I, I really like, you know, your approach and making sure that every additional NFT sale, which I can see being pretty small, um, but, you know, being meaningful in terms of what you can do with it and how it expands you know, your enjoyment of the of everything. That's completely correct. I mean, I'm surrounded by like, like literally right now I have, whenever I'm doing something like this, I naturally have some Lego in my hand playing with it. And uh, uh, I really like the way people engage with Lego. It's, it was something we used in, in the pitch when we talked about it in that when people buy a Lego set, often they just build the thing on the box. I would say that's probably the major use case and that's what we imagine for our dice in that people will I, I imagine the majority of people will buy our dice and they will combine them in different ways and the game gets more interesting the more dice you have but essentially you'll play by our our rules and then there are some people who'll take those dice and we'll have a you know an sdk around those dice which allow people to build their own experiences with them build experiences within the um, within the D number universe and within the universe of Beneath the Six as well. So there'll be people enhancing our um, our D&D style uh, hobby with those things. And then there'll be people who take our Lego pieces and do things that us as Lego didn't understand that anyone would do anything with them, right? That in the same way as kids use Lego as, this is a bad example, but use Lego as traps for their parents and leave them all over the floor for people to stand on, right? That's not by design. But it is a sort of exciting thing as a designer, <laughs> people using your toy in a different way. And to me, that was the really, really exciting thing about Magic Cave when we started thinking about it right at the start, was I've always thought the strength of video games is not in linear experiences, but in experiences where the player has agency and the wider that agency the more interesting the experience and where games start to become toys that's where i get really really excited and what the way we position magic cave is yeah we make games but we're actually a toy company we're a digital toy company and those toys are surrounded by a layer of games that we make and we're good at that because we're games makers but they're also surrounded by all this other stuff that other people make that's the hobby and that's the exciting part we sort of dipped our toes into the water of this when, when Steve and I were out at GDC, and you were you were there too. Um, we the rest of the team had a few days just to do a game jam. We split the the Beneath the Six team into three. Was it three teams? Um, so you know, just a handful of people on each team, um, and just said, right, just for the next few days, just build something with the with the Dino stuff. You know, whether it's with the tiles or the characters or the dice, and we ended up with three completely different games one of them was like a, a dice based beat em up um which we you know involved the rolling of the dice and probability and all of that kind of thing and you know this dice versus dice kind of thing which is quite interesting 
One of them was a space shoot 'em up um, that was kind of you know taking traits of the dice to build spaceships, and you were you were flying around this. Uh, which had never crossed our minds that you'd do something like that with it. And another one was a multiplayer capture the flag kind of thing, using the characters and, and using the skills that the different characters have really just, you know, quickly transplanted into into a different game genre. And they all worked really well. And it really, for me, sort of uh, confirmed that idea that you give people these playful things and some freedom, then they're going to do things that we never thought of. And it's, it's always the great thing. It's, it's why I always prefer working with other people than sitting there on my own trying to make a game because there's only so many ideas that you have but you open that up to a whole team and, and it becomes bigger but you open it up to the whole world and it becomes astonishing um so you know and you've seen that with with games with a lot of modding you know whether whether it's stardew valley or minecraft an even better example probably that you know the things that happened in that ecosystem because it was pretty open and i think you know one of the great things with web3 is you can go further than that i always use the phrase modding plus plus to describe what i would like to see happening in this space what in, in your view will it take to get there i think minecraft is a, is a good example minecraft had a, a really good core loop i and i remember this was like 12 years ago watching youtubers playing Minecraft and just a basic version, the vanilla Minecraft version. There was no servers that you could spin up. It was single player. Um, how were you thinking about solving the gold star problem and making sure that, you know, creators actually start creating meaningful experiences that will drive in new players that maybe don't want to play um, a game like Vanessa six and how you see that flywheel effect kicking in. Well, you're not going to attract people who don't want to play a game like Beneath the Six to Beneath the Six, or indeed to the wider hobby, right? So first, you've got to understand that that's where your core comes from. Minecraft had a brilliant... like I maintain that the reason behind Minecraft's success is its opening hour, which is you arrive in this blocky universe... And you can toy around for whatever it is, 10 minutes, but then night starts to fall and the zombies come out and you are forced to dig a hole in the ground and you cover that hole up with dirt and you can hear the arc outside and you're like, oh God. And then eventually dawn breaks and you're like, okay, I'm safe again, but this time I'm going to make a slightly nicer house and I'm going to build a window in it or something so I can see. And then you're in that loop immediately that it's just, I'll build my house bigger and bigger and bigger. As you do, you see a thing, like, oh, maybe I should build my house over there, actually, because that's a prettier place. And then you're in, right? Fundamentally, that has nothing to do with the wider community of why Minecraft is brilliant and why it's a phenomenon. That's just how they trap the players. So that comes back to what Harry and I have been saying sort of for the last half hour, which is you've got to build a game first you've got to build a really really good game now there are 10,000 games coming out every year and very few of those people have a different thesis they all want to build a good game right like no one very few people set out and go oh I just want to build something that is cynical right everyone everyone's proud of everything that they make so doesn't matter you start with your core loop you start working out how do we get people into Beneath the Six. Now, we've got some ideas around that, and it's, there's some what we regard as unique things about the game that set it apart um, that we think will hook people in and get people in that loop. But you also have to understand where your initial audience is. And we think our initial audience is some of the um, 
you know, Web3 smart people who are hungry for good games in that space that also show glimpses of what this space could be. And uh, also players who just play these sort of games. So that's where we're going to get our audience from. Now, when you've got those people in, in any audience like that, there are creatives who want to build and go, oh, what if it would be like this? Well, RSTK allows you to build new experiences and play around with that. And then you hope that they build other experiences that draw in other people, just as Minecraft got wider and wider and wider. And sometimes, you know, there are people who don't care about that opening half hour. Uh, but it's the people who were initially attracted to that that build the world. And eventually you add a, end up at the space that Harry described right at the start, where there are multiple entry points for people who want to get into the hobby but don't want to play the game, just want to paint the figures because that's what they care about, or just want to write huge stories for this world and have their players just want to DM, that kind of thing. Um, but you can't start building that, right? You can't, you can't go, yeah, right, I mean, they've the, the, got the, a hobby. <laughs> Come enjoy the game industry is is full of you know and i'm sure you've seen a lot of these nico people that are pitching platform plays you know because platforms are always really exciting because look at the scale that we can achieve by being a platform right but there are almost no successful platforms that haven't come on the back of some kind of other successful product unity is actually probably an exception that unity you know it was coming from a game developer but they didn't have a successful game first but other than that i can't think of many you think of like something like um uh steam right steam is, is so phenomenally successful now but if valve hadn't developed half-life 2 which at the time was the best game and forced you to install steam much to the fury of gamers who thought it was outrageous to be forced to install Steam, especially when they bought this game in a shop on a disc. Why were they having to install Steam? Um, but without that, it may well be, you know, I'm sure there were plenty of companies that had the ability to create a great um, digital distribution platform in, in the early 2000s, but it took the greatest game in the world, arguably, to to facilitate that. And I think that happens time and time again. You know, would Unreal Engine be as successful as it was were it not powering some incredible games before that? Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's a tall order, right? It's, yeah, all we've got to do is build an amazing game that everyone wants to play and then all this other stuff on top of it. Well, you know, building an amazing game that everyone wants to play is incredibly hard. Um, so, you know, we, we are... This is one of the reasons why we're putting out versions of it or, or subsets of it incredibly early, which you wouldn't normally do. Um, but because we want, you know, we want to take it slow. We want to get some validation. We want to get some customers that that like it and and and, and build with them. Um, but it's it's definitely not going to be easy. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that that's the big challenge for this whole space is massive, ambitious vision in the long term but baby steps to get there yeah. and, and not really any roadmap to follow because it's, it's so new. A big part of your um, press release and the accompanying video is, um, is, is, is centered around AI voice. It's really interesting to me, but what, what can you tell me about that? How did, how did that process, how, how did you get, decide to get that into your game? Um, well, the, the starting point was that we, we want to be ultimately generating content that is unique to every user. So where we're starting is we're, we're you know, generating a whole new procedural world every day. 
um, you know, just these these arena worlds, which are simpler than the, the bigger worlds that we'll be creating later down the line. But but further along than that, we want people to be able to own their own worlds. If you own your own world, you can curate that world. You can put things in the world. You can determine, you know, who can play in your world. If you want to, you can, you know, hide some treasure on level 15 of your world and invite your friends in to play. You, 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 you can, you know, do all of the things that a dungeon master could do in Dungeons & Dragons. It's your world to do with as you want. Now... You know, we, we've built already a lot of technology. Steve said we built it for the dice, first of all, being able to generate, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of sets of unique dice, being able to do the same thing with characters and then doing the same thing with worlds. Um, but being able to do these things at that kind of scale rather than at the scale of, you know, most existing Web3 games, which might only have to cater for a few thousand players. You know, the, the NFT drops that we saw last year and the year before was typically kind of, you know, 5,000 to 10,000 unique things. Um, and that's a kind of manageable project. It's not manageable to do 5 million unique worlds hand-built. So, so everything has to... We have to think about everything in that generative sense. And... <clears throat> Around the time that we were um, sort of starting to put out the arena, we got to know the guys at Eleven Labs, um, who are they, they, we have a, a pre-seed investor in common in Concept Ventures, and it just felt like actually this is a this is a great example of the kind of technology where we can, um, you know, we can generate content every day. We can't get an actor from the TV to come in every day and record a new set of, uh, you know, a thousand lines of dialogue um, to go live at midnight every night because we've generated a new dungeon. But we can, with Eleven Labs, create an amazing AI voice that can then generate that. So it, it, it's just one example of the kind of approach I think you have to take when you're creating this bespoke content for large numbers of people and ultimately allowing other people to create that bespoke content. You know, if you've got a a million people all curating their own worlds with their own stories and their own characters in that world. And you want a narrator to be telling you your way through the story. Well, you know, every one of our users isn't going to go and hire an, <laughs> an actor from the TV to come and speak in their ear, but you can do it with tech. And, and I think, you know, the other thing we were really keen to do with, um, with, with AI is, is think about some of the ethics of it. You know, there's been a lot of talk about, um, uh, you know, AI taking work away from people or companies um, being able to use people's voices or likenesses or whatever, you know, ad infinitum forever. So we were really keen to kind of be, be an early pioneer, as were Eleven Labs, you know, very keen to look after the role of the artist in this thing. Um, so that that's why, you know, part of the press release also talks about the kind of deal that we've structured there that, that I hope can be a sort of framework that people can use going forward, whether it's for um, you know, voice or image or, or, or whatever other kind of generative AI people use. I'm just finished watching the newest season of Black Mirror, mm -hmm. of which the first episode talks almost exactly about that, where actors more specifically give their likeness and allow generative AI to use them in, in simulations and, and, and more specifically TV shows. Um, could you elaborate maybe a bit on how you're thinking about, well, the, the, the kind of deal you struck and, and how you set that up where you think, you know, this, this is how this makes sense um, sustainably moving forward? Um, yeah, I, I also saw that episode of Black Mirror and thought, 
uh, thought much the same. I mean, there, there are parallel. I mean, you, not that you want to be comparing your business model to something that Charlie Brooker has written in a dystopian near future. Um, <laughs> but, but, but yeah, I, I think that it was interesting. Um, but I, I, I just think generally um, it, it's a good thing to behave well. Um, you know, I've been in the games industry for 30 years and generally haven't fallen out with anybody. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, part of it is just, you know, don't be horrible, right? Don't, don't, don't exploit people, make sure you pay people, all of this kind of stuff. Um, and, and, and so, you know, part of it is just wanting to be a good actor. Part of it, I think, is also just looking at the, the Web3 space. You know, by the time Steve and I started looking at this space seriously, it was already quite tarnished with a lot of scams um, and, you know, sometimes out and out scams as, as we, we know, but sometimes just sort of naivety of behavior. You know, we saw a lot of, I think quite a lot of sort of naive game projects. Same thing happened with Kickstarter 10 years ago. A lot of people kind of thought, yeah, we're going to raise $20,000 and we're going to make an MMO to challenge uh, World of Warcraft. And, you know, loads of these projects that I think were probably often started with good intentions. People not realizing quite how difficult and expensive it is to do this stuff. Um, so, yeah, in terms of the, the, the AI voice, I think it's just wanting to behave well. It's kind of looking into the future. Um, you know, you don't want to be, I don't think, a company that is accused of exploiting voice actors, right? So, so you know, we, we made a point of saying to the, the, the voice actor, this is yours. You know, we don't want to own this. It's not an area that most voice actors were even very familiar with when we started the conversations. They didn't know that we could replicate their voice and they were kind of blown away when they saw what we could do. But, you know, I, I think it would be very easy as, as I think used to happen quite a lot in the music industry, you know, someone in the fifties signs an exploitative contract, have thousand number one hits and don't make any money out of it. I don't want to be that band manager that did that to someone, you know? And, and, and I, so, so and, you know, I was reading examples of people saying, you know, this big company and this big company, if you do a voiceover for them, the contract says they can use this voice for anything, including building an AI voice. It just feels like a lot of people could be signing contracts here that are actually going to have negative implications for decades of their life. Um, and again, you, you, you kind of want to avoid that, I think. I think that's, a, <clears throat> that's totally fair. So what we just did was we we started the conversation by, you know, remembering last year where you were now we're talking about where you are now um you know part of what i like to do with catch-ups with companies even if we we don't invest in them is you know trying to make predictions or hmm. at least a, a milestone of where do you want to be next year so if we do this again maybe again with gin and tonics at developing brighton <laughs> where where's magic Ave at in a year from now I like the way that we're both pausing. Well, I was just thinking way. I'd yeah. spoken too much already. You were yeah. thinking, I hope the other, I hope <laughs> Harry or I hope Steve think this one. I mean, I'm happy to, if you want, I can just talk some more about voice AI. And then, uh, <laughs> no, no, Steve, you're <laughs> getting the hard question. So, yeah, it's, a, it's an impossible question. Um, we are going to put out the arena uh, demo in, uh, not demo, you know what I mean, uh, arena test, combat test in a couple of months. And uh, that's, going to be deliberately restricted we'll have a certain number of codes to give away and uh people will get those codes on our discord they will claim them and then when there are no more codes there are no more codes 
And what we'll do is we'll learn about how people are engaging with the game from that. And if all goes well, uh, we'll, you know, after two weeks of testing, we'll be like, brilliant, this has got incredibly high engagement. Everyone loves us. The only feedback we've got is that we're great and brilliant and they can't wait. That's what always happens. Deleted Mm -hmm. all their other games and they're never going to play anything other than Beneath the Six and When is Above the Six coming out? Mm. And all of this, right? That's... That's your sort of optimal. And the other end of that is, you know, um, the number of people installed it, everyone played it once, that was it. No one played it ever again, and we got nothing but torrents of abuse to our uh, feedback email address. Or that the game didn't even work. Who knows? Like, those are the, those are the two extremes. And somewhere in between that is what's going to happen. And what's going to happen from that combat test informs what happens over the next 10 months. That informs what we develop. We will be building this out into a, um, you know, a fuller game, and I would expect that to take about a year. Um, I would also expect during that year us to embark upon some side projects as well, some other things informed by what's going on around us and the things that we've learned from those tests as well. But it's a fast-moving space. I, like, it, it, you know, the only thing that we could have predicted a year ago, is that the bubble would pop. And we were predicting that when we were pitching, and we were right. And that's why we're glad we have the sort of pitch that we do, which is build conservatively, think about the technology, think about where it's going, watch what's going on around you, but stay on target and try and build a good game. That's what we're going to focus on over the next year. Yeah, and and I think, you know, doing this incrementally, so, you know, the combat test goes out and... I guess, you know, I guess one thing we could learn is we learn nothing from the combat. It, 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 it's quite possible that even this idea of building these things incrementally turns out that that wasn't a great idea after all. But assuming that that is a good idea, then there'll be more of those incremental steps. So, you know, the next version of the game will likely have some elements of exploration as well as combat. Uh, might not have the full, you know, stories. There, there's going to be an awful lot missing. It might not have all the characters or all the dice, or maybe it won't have multiplayer. Um, but there, there'll, there'll be a tangible step on a few months after that first one, and then a few months after that, there'll be another tangible step on. The big components at the moment, at least in our minds, are you know, arena gets the combat right, exploration gets the sort of longer term gameplay. Then sort of more depth in the exploration, more purpose to it. It's one thing to have a big world. But really, you want purpose and story and, you know, uh, it's sort of increasing difficulty. That's a slightly unsophisticated way of describing it. But but sort of narrative, and I, I mean that in a, in a gameplay sense as much as a, a, as a sort of word sense. But, you know, narrative kind of driving you through the game. Then there's the, the elements of, of multiplayer gaming. What does it mean when there's now three of us going through this dungeon instead of one of us? Does what does that change? What do we need to tweak? Does it mean the dungeons have to be bigger? Does it mean the character you know and then learning more about how much do people care about whether they're playing with a wizard versus playing with a barbarian? Are they different enough and experienced? Do we need to make bigger differences? That kind of thing. And and then the sort of uh, just for slightly further down the roadmap is when it starts getting more, from a Web3 point of view, I think more interesting. And you're then into, okay, now I own this world or I own these things and I am I am contributing to the ecosystem. I'm not just a player in it. And that stuff, I think, I think you need all the other bits right first. Um, and then that stuff starts to get very, very interesting. And ultimately, 
you know, not in one year, but in a number of years, we see this thing being a decentralized hobby that people are adding to. You know, I remember, you know, going back to D&D, you'd have the three books that, that, that I bought when I started playing D&D, but you'd also buy a magazine and the magazine might introduce a whole new character class or it might introduce new spells or new weapons or, you know, and that was great because it, it, it gave a sort of fluidity to that hobby. And, I, and I, that, that's when I think it starts getting really exciting, but there's just so much to do first. Good thing we have Harry who actually answers my question. <laughs> I mean, yeah, uh, this is the second time in the last six months you've answered this question. Uh, you've asked me this question because when I was on your podcast at the start of the year, you mm -hmm. asked predictions over the over the next year, and those yeah. predictions haven't changed either. The, the next year in this sector, and by sector I mean the Web3 sector rather than the gaming sector, although this goes for both, is that it's going to be really, really challenging for a lot of people. Uh, and... Um, our, you know, our objective as t with everybody is to learn and survive. In a year's time, what I want is some practical example of what we're building out there and people enjoying it. I want a small community on our Discord who believe in and love our hobby. I want regular D&D nights where we talk about the Beneath the Six world and people participate with us, and I want to grow from there. Is that concrete enough? So much better, see. Why didn't you start with that? You know? I think I, I would also like there, this is all out of our hands, but I'd like there to be more clarity on regulatory stuff and yeah. also just on, you know, are people liking this? You know, there, there has been, feels to me like a lot of the negativity, it, people are getting a bit more relaxed about it. People are, are starting to see this doesn't necessarily all have to be a scam. Um, does, you know, hopefully that continues. Do people start to embrace it? Do people? We don't know yet. What, what would be great is if we see that that trajectory is okay. Um, that it's it's not the case that only you know one percent of people are ever going to care about blockchain stuff or or you know digital ownership. I think the, the, the talk of blockchain or which blockchain, all of this stuff is 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 a blip. I think it, it, it kind of doesn't matter. It's more, more important. It's just, it is the concept of owning something that you can't pick up, something that people are going to want to engage with or not. It's digital ownership, I think. And, you know, so it, it would be good to see that that's moving in the right direction. And if it's not, we need to be able to react to that too. Uh, if it's moving more slowly than we anticipated. And also, yeah, on, on the regulatory side, you know, we see the, the SEC being very, aggressively anti certain things in crypto now at the moment we're really glad and we you know we we took a decision when we were first talking to you we said you know we were pretty nervous about the idea of of putting out tokens you know all of this stuff because it, 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 there's a lot of lack of clarity we can see some reasons why you'd do it but we can also see some reasons why you wouldn't want to do it and uh, yeah so so sort of you know addressing all of those issues at least starting to find out what's okay, what's not with different jurisdictions and with the general public is, is going to be, I think we'll be in a better place to know in a year's time. Where, if people are inspired by this and, and really want to try your combat list, where can they find, find out more? Easiest thing to do is to go to our, our main corporate website where, where things are linked from. So if they go to magicave.io, M-A-G-I-C-A-V-E.io, um, they can get to our Discord or our Twitter from there. Uh, if they want to go straight to our Twitter, it's Dino Dice, D-N-O-D-I-C-E. Um, so yeah, either of those will be the, the best entry point for us. Fantastic. Good. 
Um, and how about yourselves? If people want to keep in touch with what you guys are up to, Steve, do you want to talk about this weekly thing you do, which is not definitely not a podcast? Um, people are welcome to uh, follow my radio show, which is One Life Left. It's the longest running radio show about video games uh, in the English language. That that <laughs> the caveats on that get seem to get longer every time. <laughs> Actually, there's one in Spain. Actually, there's been one running in Scotland for three for 300 years. Uh, we've been doing the radio show for 17 years, so uh, broadcast on a station in London called Resonance FM, which is excellent as well. You can find me on Twitter at Steers Here. You can find me at Develop um, doing Marioki, which is pop songs about video games. That's on the Tuesday night. It's sold out, but uh, if you come on the door at 9pm, you can probably get in. There'll be people who arrive and leave. Don't know why, Nico. Mm. I don't understand either. Yeah. Uh, I'd be there you, all the time. You and Harry are both on holiday, so it's oh, neither of you. Yeah. Poor timing. Yeah. Harry, how about you? Um, well, I don't have any of those things, but I do have a Twitter account, um, which is hhomewood, H-H-O-L-M-W-O-O-D. Um, so feel free to follow me on there. I can't guarantee it's going to be insightful, but it will be. <laughs> it will be a way that you can follow what I say. Good. I'm on awesome. Twitter as well at Steers here. Did I say that already? You no. did say that. Okay. Well, it's, it's good to, to, to repeat that. That's okay. Okay. Fantastic. All right. Harry and Steve, um, as usual, always enjoy chatting with you. Um, I hope we can do this next year. Um, so Harry and I, we make sure we don't book a holiday mm. during develop and we're just <laughs> there. And then we can do a recording and then karaoke um, uh, and sing some songs together. Yeah, that'd be I'm amazing with, with enough gin and tonics, uh, which we'll need. Good. Harry, Steve. Really appreciate you joining. Um, audience, listener, if you enjoyed this, um, please check out Magic Cave. Highly recommend it. You can, um, well, I'll be playing the, the playtest, so um, we'll be giving my feedback. Um, and if you enjoyed the show, let us know as well. And with that, we are out, and we look forward to speaking to you in the next episode. Ciao. Thank you.